0: As-salamu alaykum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talibman and Imam Rana Ratta. And, uh, yeah, we're presenting from our studios here live uh, <coughs> in South London from the Voice of Islam Studios. How are you feeling today, Rana?
1: Yeah, not too bad. Weekend. Um, I'm feeling a bit more, you know, happy in the sense that every, every time on this, like, um, drive time, I always remember the, it's, it's pretty dark, dark. Um, outside, right? So this is like the first time in a long time. Do you think you're one of those people
0: who's affected by light? And what I mean by that, you know, some people are affected yeah. by light, right? You, you feel happier. Um, you're much more
1: energetic. You have a lot more energy. You feel with it. Yeah, I think so, because... Um, I'm just feeling that sort of like wow. It's it seems like a you so know. So it was renewed... just looking at me. No, no, no. It's not just look. Well, you're 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 always the you know source of my energy. But oh really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll but... leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. All right then. But that's what I'm saying. In the sense yeah, that right. this new um, the weather isn't depressing for bright, once. It, it isn't depressing yeah. for once. is yeah, it? Exactly. So um, that adds an en- like this um, excitement uh, going into the. Into the show, hour. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as always, I'm always excited to be with you, Rana. Well, oh, thank you. for, for that. In in the right ways, in
0: the right ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of on 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 the uh, on the drive time show, we always deal with very contemporary and uh, uh, contemporary issues, contemporary topics. Uh, today, what we on the uh, board today? Then, well, uh,
1: Today, we will be discussing in the first hour. I believe it's uh, we're going to discuss the Rwanda scheme oh, okay, yeah. and. Um, G- try to go into it, in, yeah. Ha- try to go into the detail of it. Um, see its m- mainly its like its negative elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the second hour, I think, uh, we you know, you're going to be uh, this is something that you've produced from from your heart, I, yeah. I, I suppose. It's going to be discussing the subject of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's that's the that's the schedule, that's the plan for today.
0: Yeah, the Alzheimer's is uh, taken from uh, new research actually that is out. By a study group, actually, yes, a Swedish study group from memory, uh, saying that uh, an early diagnosis and a cheap, di- cheaper, let's put it that way, yeah. uh, form of diagnosis for Alzheimer's, and obviously, if we can diagnose Alzheimer's um, even pre, yeah. right, even before you've uh, with the onset of the disease uh, illness, then. You know, it gives you much more opportunities, although currently there isn't a cure ultimately mm. for outsiders. Yes. But at least it gives you uh, a heads up yep. uh, with coping strategies and other medications that you can have. But that's in the second hour. Yep. Without further ado, though, we're going to jump into Rwanda. Um, obviously, for those who maybe aren't in the know, uh, the Rwanda scheme, I mean, is it just a gimmick? And this is uh, the government's method, I suppose, of... Uh, sending asylum seekers to Rwanda uh, as an off-country site, whilst their um, whilst their asylum uh, is, I suppose, kind of processed. Yep. So we're going to look at that, and I mean, you know, it has sparked uh, very much heated debate, even within the government itself, even within the, yep. the Conservative Party. So we're going to examine the actual origins of the plan also the revised proposals from the government, implications for immigrants and taxpayers as well, the legal challenges, and whether this seems to be a serious policy, or is it just a gimmick? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it something, uh, smoke and mirrors to distract us voters, because there is a general election in the offing, mm-hmm. uh, and just, uh, like I say, it's a bit of like a, a the shell and pea game, uh, as we're looking at these I suppose, you know, these I wouldn't say it's a uh, – uh, what's the word? Kind of like a minor issue. It is an issue. But I think there are more major issues uh, as regards to the economy, yeah. as to regards to uh, employment, cost of living – Uh, crises that we see in the NHS uh, with our transport system Mm -hmm. so maybe it's one of those so we're going to discover if it is a political gimmick. Now the Rwanda scheme aims to deter dangerous journeys to the UK and tackle uh, people smuggling networks Uh, but critics argue it breaches refugee rights and amounts to offshore detention centres now from you know religious point of view uh, perspective it's, diff- it's a difficult topic really for 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 Muslims, as on the one hand, the holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him was himself a refugee, uh, and we are so inherently taught to help and protect vulnerable, pe- vulnerable people, especially refugees. <coughs> Uh, it says in uh, the Holy Quran, chapter 9, verse 6, And if any one of the disbelievers seeks your protection, then grant him protection so that he may hear the word of Allah and then escort him to where he will be secure. But also, and this is, the, I suppose, the flip side of the coin for Muslims, that uh, we're also taught to obey our leaders who are in charge as loyalty to one's nation is part of one's faith. Um Uh, saying um, uh, the saying of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him says whoso obeys the ruler obeys me and whoso disobeys the ruler disobeys me so you know when we end up being bound by obedience to a nation when our leaders make such decisions which may be hmm you know, a bit short on their moral compass, yeah. let's put it that way. Uh, you know, this should not deter us from giving to charities to support, you know, these people in need. Uh, we can also explore legal means or raise concerns through writing articles and reaching out to our MPs. Though we should obey our our leaders, we can also, uh, and we can and should use our democratic right. To respectfully object to laws and policies that go against our morals and belief. I mean, it's important to note that our leaders are instructed to make sound and just ethical decisions. Um, chapter two, verse thirteen: Create not disorder in the earth. I mean, uh, Rana. I mean, what do you think about that? It is. It is a bit of a yeah, a, a juxtaposition it, of, it of uh, points of it
1: view. Is, really, um, um, and <laughs> we taking all of this into account i would say that um uh, we should always if if it were up to me i would say that if the leaders are making decisions which you think that uh, do not quite fit with your own um your own way of uh, seeing it i would always say that look um maybe try to understand it from their point of view and see and understand that they may are maybe they are trying to do their best mm-hmm. to uh make your life a lot easier okay but from a
0: uh islamic okay let's yeah. let's do, you know from an islamic jurisprudence point yeah. of view if your leaders are making decisions whereby they contradict our teachings in the holy quran yeah. okay then are we as, as 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 citizens of that country, are we able to not take up arms, but at least you know point it out to our leaders?
1: Look, you've you've touched a very uh, interesting subject. Okay, mm-hmm. the, uh, as Ahmadis as well, we've 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 had to explain. This was a big major question that was posed to the promised Messiah, who mm-hmm. we follow. May at the time, at that. the time when he was uh, when he became um, when he claimed to be the Messiah, mm-hmm. you know, by the the Muslims of India uh who insisted that he should have also waged war against uh the British mm-hmm. uh, empire for invading their lands now his point at that time was that no this is not justified because this uh this um, entering of the british empire mm-hmm. is of course a conquest or in that sense but they have not taken away your religious rights towards yeah. your your freedom religious yeah. jihad so this is not uh, so no such thing can ever uh, allow us to, you know, raise uh, violent arms or Mm -hmm. anything in that sense that no, uh, they haven't taken your religious freedom away from you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just a completely separate subject. Mm. Yes, these points about the government making, uh, you know, policies that are against maybe that might be against your own policies in Mm. an Islamic point of view. That's that's a, that's something that you can uh, you you should raise you are you're, you're entitled to raise your mm-hmm. uh, you know your your opinions. Yeah, and, we live in a country of free speech. Right? And yeah, exactly. Policies can change. Okay, it's not something that that is set in stone. Um, and if you disagree with it, you're more than welcome to. Um, you know, you're you're more than welcome to migrate yourself. You're, mm-hmm. you're allowed that. You, I think that's yeah, that's yeah, one yeah. of the slogans, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't like it, get out. Yeah, exactly. But that's,
0: that's one of the, the So in, from a, from of a of
1: religious this. point of view, look, it's it's not like oh, it's uh, we have to uh, violently mm. go against. Yeah, it. we don't take yeah. up arms against yeah. it, right?
0: I mean, coming in coming back uh, to the Rwanda scheme. I mean, it was first announced by the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, back in April 2022. This scheme would allow the UK to send some asylum seekers that were deemed to have arrived illegally to Rwanda. Their asylum claims would be then processed in Rwanda uh, and if granted asylum, they would have the right to remain in Rwanda rather than returning to UK. I Yeah, just reading that sounds a bit nonsensical because I would have just gone to Rwanda Mm. to seek asylum instead of that. But anyway, the UK government signed a deal with Rwanda initially paying £120 million. The government has claimed this scheme would deter Uh, illegal and dangerous journeys to the UK and tackle people uh, smuggling networks. However, many people have criticised the scheme, breaches refugee rights and amounts to an offshore detention centre. The scheme was consequently appealed and ruled unlawful by British courts in June 2023, as Rwanda was deemed an unsafe country. Uh, also in November 2023, the UK Supreme Court uh, announced unanimously, unanimously uh, its ruling that the scheme was unlawful. I mean, we're joined actually by our first guest of the day uh, to talk more about this, Richard Young, who's a representative from the Law Society and who is also an immigration solicitor. Peace and blessings be upon you, Richard. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show.
2: Thank you very much. Good afternoon.
0: So we're talking about the Rwanda scheme. I mean, is it uh, just a gimmick from the current government or is it workable? I mean, what is the Law Society's opinion regarding this scheme?
2: Um, The Law Society has um, extreme reservations about the scheme on a number of fronts. Um, So we regard it as being uh, constitutionally improper for um, various reasons, including as you've just alluded to the fact that the supreme court did find that rwanda is an unsafe country and Mm -hmm. yet the government's still proposing to go ahead with removals there it also in the law society's view undermined access to justice Mm -hmm. and also um is an example of poor uh, law making in the sense that it's um unworkable and it's not going to have all that much of an impact given the numbers that could be sent there even if it did get up and running
0: I mean if you can just clarify for me as well that there is a reciprocal arrangement with uh, the government of Rwanda as well for us accepting Rwandan
2: refugees Um, Yes there there is a um, provision for that although I, I doubt whether that's going to have much of an impact on the UK in terms of numbers because mm-hmm. there are very few sort of, um, people who are recognised as refugees in the UK from uh, Rwanda, although I think there are um, a small number. So I think that might be a bit of a gimmick, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you said that the the scheme itself is unconstitutional. I mean, how is it unconstitutional uh, and effectively unworkable within our current uh, justice system?
2: Um, well, there are a number of reasons, as I said before. Um, the Supreme Court has um, made a finding of fact that Rwanda is a is an unsafe um, country it's not safe for refugee claims to be determined there that was after an exhaustive consideration of the evidence that was put before it and an examination of the current circumstances in Rwanda so um, it's constitutionally objective Objectionable the scheme because it um seeks to go behind a finding of fact as opposed to a finding a law by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So it's in effect using law to manufacture a reality that doesn't exist, namely that um Rwanda is a safe country to determine asylum claims. And um it also um suppresses um judicial oversight over uh, removal was there because there are severe limits on um what the courts here can do to challenge even you know le- potentially legitimate objections to people being removed there uh, in individual cases. And the other wide sort of constitutional concern is that it undermines um international law mm. because um it prevents um people um who would be subject to being removed there. Uh, from um, raising um, human rights um, arguments um, against removal. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, What legal rights are violated by this scheme?
2: Um, Well, as I've said, I mean, it suppresses um, judicial oversight. So it's an access to justice issue. So, you know, legal rights in terms of justice access are severely undermined because there's very little that the courts can do to stop a removal. And also, as I said, sort of linked to that is that is the fact that um, um, human rights considerations don't come into play. What the government have said is that um, they've um, not made what's called a 19 uh, statement to confirm that this law is compatible with um, human rights um, obligations. Um, that section 19 um, Uh, declaration has not been made. As I said, usually it's just a matter of course in terms of uh, legislation that's um, being considered, but it hasn't been made in this case, which strongly suggests that both ministers and government lawyers take the view that most probably um, the scheme isn't um, human rights compliant.
0: But if that's the case, Richard, right, that even the government's own lawyers view that you know, it's it's not a, a viable scheme. Why, in your opinion, are, are, are the government and the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak trying to push this through?
2: Um, well, that's more of a political question rather than a mm. legal one. I mean, it, it, what's prompted this, obviously, is the um, numbers of uh, people crossing the um, channel um, illegally, the government's argument, and it's essentially a... Political argument, legal mm-hmm. one, is that a scheme such as this would um, discourage um, people from um, making that journey in the first place, and also disrupting the uh, sort of illegal trade of the uh, people traffickers and so on. Um, but the scheme hasn't, as we all know, come into force yet at all, it's some way off coming to force if it ever does. And of course, um, numbers have been sort of reducing by about a third or a quarter whatever it is exactly over more recent times so the numbers are going down even without this and there are also other past examples of um, instances where governments of both parties have sort of sought to introduce measures to discourage um, asylum claims such as in the past for example the fast tracking and detention of people claiming asylum and that didn't really have much of an impact on sort of numbers coming in and total asylum claims. So the reason why it's there is is political more than mm. um, legal, but from a legal standpoint there are sort of serious question marks over whether it's going to get yeah, or... Yeah, because
0: ultimately or- if, say for instance, the, the, this actual scheme, the bill, um, as I believe it, although it's been passed in the House of Commons, it's still uh, in the process of being heard in the House of Lords. Um, and it, it is going to be a quite a, I should think, uh, still a bit of a long-winded process to get uh, it to become, it will come into legislation. So, for me, it's a case of, well, why why bother then? Uh, is it just really a political gimmick then?
2: Um, well, I can't go into detail on the politics. I'm here to represent the law society. Yeah. But, I mean, there's certainly considerations in play, I think. We all recognise that. I mean, as you've said, it's got its um, third reading in the um, House of Commons. It's now in the House of Lords. Um, there is expected to be um, very significant objections um, um, uh, to it um, in that House, and both on the floor of the House and its, in its committee stages there. Um, it may or may not get through. If it doesn't get through, then the government can attempt to force it through, using um, separate legislation under the Parliament Act to sort of overrule what the House of Lords is saying. But that's not going to be feasible before um, the general election.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so going back to your um, political point, I think um, you know, I think it might sort of be as much sort of concerned with political considerations. <laughs> I,
0: I, I think... Election, um, rather yeah, than else. yeah, I think I made uh, the... Uh, Analogy of the shell game, you know, when you're kind of like trying to pick where the pea is in the three cups and that's a game that the government is currently playing um, just to really just take people's eye off the ball and around actually more serious issues. I'm not saying that uh, you know, this, uh, the small boats issue is not an issue concerning this country. It is. But uh, in terms of how that, uh compares to other issues that the the country is facing. Maybe it isn't as I suppose you know uh, as important. But Richard, uh thank you very much for spending some time with us and explaining the legal aspects of the Rhinder scheme to us. Thank you very much for joining us on the drive time show this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. O two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So really What's all that about then, really, Rana? Right, because you know, as Richard said, okay, he's not really—he's he's there representing mm. the law, law society, and giving us the legal representation, and you know, legal representation—it's totally illegal.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, bizarre, I guess, right? It, it is bizarre, but um, look, it is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that needs to be. Uh, Questioned and challenged again and again, and I suppose that the people who are imposing it, they have their, uh, they, they always impose these things with some sort of like backing, and they know that oh, legally we, we're covered from from this or that. So nothing can be really done uh, in that sense. Of course, they're going to come come in hard with with whatever they impose. The, the one question that I am a bit confused about, maybe you mm. could help me on, is that, for instance, if you seek asylum in in the uk but you get sent to rwanda mm-hmm. and when one when, when your asylum uh, you know it's cleared you can stay <laughs> you can stay in no rwanda. but that's it yeah you can't you're you're in rwanda yeah so so do you have a british passport staying in rwanda what's, what's well the, no because look okay you know you saw so, you came in this with, sort of, you're
0: not you're, you're not okay so imagine you are fleeing from conflict yeah. zone you're a syrian yeah you're a yemeni ukrainian uh, anything, anything, right? Yeah. Any of any uh, persuasion from any country, yeah. right? Uh, Palestinian, yeah. right? So you're fleeing from conflict, uh, whether it be political, religious persecution. So you have a valid claim in yeah. that sense. So you come to, and it, and it is, you know, according to it, the International Charter for Refugee Rights, it is your right as a refugee to seek asylum wherever you choose. So this fallacy that, oh, it should be in your first port of call, your first Mm. country that you feel safe in, not necessarily the case, right? So you come to the shores of the UK. So you have right Mm. travelled from, you're a 15-year-old child. You've travelled all that way uh, from Syria. You've travelled all that way because you might have relatives. Mm. You might have friends who are already... Uh, here Mm, in the UK, UK, right? So that's your reason, okay? Uh, You are able to cross the channel because there's no legal way Mm. currently. So you're able to cross the channel. You come into border control. Border control get a hold of you, not physically, but you you come into border control and then your asylum is processed. Well, to start off, you haven't got a passport, okay? So asylum or the home office have to then assess whether your claim for asylum is is valid or not.
3: Mm.
0: So I ask you, right, no wonder these claims take so long because mm. if you have truly fleed from bombing, a war zone, okay, maybe the very least you're going to take are, are your paper documents, mm. right, like a passport, whatever it may be. But that's about it, right? You're really fleeing for your life. Mm. So when you get here, maybe that's the only bit of documentation you've got. Mm. But you've got stories that I was living in uh, this area. You can trace me to there. So that's how the asylum process works. Mm. Now, then to be put on an airplane and then flown to Rwanda. Rwanda, And then after two years, bare minimum, your asylum has been assessed and say, yes, actually, no, it's a valid. Mm. You've got a valid claim. You're free to stay in Rwanda.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's all (laughs) I'm. That's that's exactly what's happening. My my point is that, you know, eventually a person who sought asylum and has been granted asylum, but in in fact, it it goes on to be granted citizenship. Mm -hmm. So, asylum leads to citizenship. Now they are, let's say, they've gone to the UK. Uh, Not necessarily. I don't don't know if
0: it does lead to citizenship, unless you know you you have to apply for that as well. I mean, just being granted asylum—that's the
1: whole, you know, the 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 whole purpose of eventually. Look, once you have found asylum, Mm you have also found a new home, and you've also found this place as your as as where you see your future. Mm. And that's the whole, you know, when when, for instance, oh, I've just been bombed, but now I have to seek refuge somewhere. Mm You look okay. Well, if I've made this jump, I might as well go to somewhere where I know that that this is going to be my future. So that you know, sending someone to the Rwanda in that sense, you know, is that like, um, is th- is that fair? Because they they came well, to the U- yeah, they, of course you know, that's what, that's that's the questions. And then let's say you do um, get that um, you know that safety, that sanctuary that you came mm-hmm. to the UK for, shouldn't they be then getting? a British passport because that's what they actually came for, right? And you're they're, they're following, I don't know. they're you, following your process, they're yeah, following your process. That you're you put asking in...
0: me questions above my pay grade, right? No, no, you no, should no, be it's, asking it's, it's, these of it's, it's, the, 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 should the, the actually, actually, law society. <laughs> no, no, not even him, not even him. You should be asking the home secretary, the
1: home secretary, right? Is All right?
0: For uh, will you get a British uh, British passport? Uh, yeah. And you don't, I don't think you do, Do right? The, and because,
1: not just the British passport, okay? The same, uh, you know, benefits for. For instance, Mm -hmm. a person who is on a site or has gone through the first process of asylum Mm -hmm. and is maybe allowed to work or receive some sort of benefits, Mm -hmm. those benefits that they receive in the UK, will they be receiving them in Rwanda? Now, the second question that then is uh, born from this is that if this is a successful process, what what's stopping the United States to maybe they've already got some sort of mm. uh,
0: yeah, but it's not. I'll, I'll tell you one thing, right before you even kind of like yeah, go to the next stage regarding the, if it is the setting if, of precedence. Yeah, 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 If it's if it's a workable uh, scheme, let's put it this way: the Israelis ditched it, yeah, because they wanted to send their asylum seekers to Rwanda, mm. and they found that it's not. Viable,
1: it's not viable,
0: and so th- in every aspect of this, yep. it's not viable whether it be legally, whether it be from a cost benefit point of view, as well, mm. right? For this government, for this country, it's not viable. Mm. So, then, therefore, it actually begs the question why is it on the table for discussion mm. and something that I think Richard uh, Richard Young was alluding to is that well it's a political decision mm. so it's more of a deterrent so, so if you were like, hold on mm-hmm. if you were an asylum seeker and you're like thinking oh you know what the UK they're going to send me to Rwanda there's no point in me going to Rwanda yeah. so then therefore
1: it's actually worked as a deterrent if you think mm. about it right but the the the, the reason okay the how how could this be defended from their... No, I, will, I'm, I keep saying there as if they're, they are the evil. No. How could we defend it from the Home Secretary's point of view? The part, the, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> the, indefensible, I, don't, the, I the, think. The point is that seeking asylum hmm. is for the sake of uh, safety, right? Yeah. For the sake of refuge. A person who needs refuge or safety wouldn't care that they are in Rwanda or they are in... Uganda or anywhere. No, we're anywhere. We're right? any, anywhere as long as they get that safety. Mm-hmm. So but then, therefore... But then if someone is thinking, well, what's the point of going to the UK when you're going to get sent to Rwanda? That, uh, you know, that No, but that's, po- that's the that whole point. It's a, the question, yeah. it's
0: a deterrent, yeah. right? But coming back to your other point, which is, is Rwanda safe? Now, this yeah. is something that Richard yeah, that's, has that's, said, That's right? a completely separate the, thing. The, 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 no, no, it it's, it's, it's in the Is it link. safe, though? Is it, it isn't. It's not classed as a safe country. What I
1: mean is that's the separate... Yeah, exactly Point of discussion that Mm. look you you know okay if you want to send them uh, somewhere but yeah we will we as we will go through Mm. you know what are the what are the hazards of actually Mm. sending someone to Rwanda whilst claiming it's safe but it's not
0: yeah but see this is the whole point it's uh, creating a a reality which is not there it's a fake reality because even. I think in 2022 yeah. or 2021, the UK government had actually claimed that because of its previous record on yeah. human rights, Rwanda was not a safe place. Exactly. So how can it suddenly, and, and,
1: you know, just, just flip flop and become of, a safe place? The questions of safety itself are quite like, uh, you know, is London safe for? If, 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 do, you, do you see my point? If you say, yeah, okay, if you're saying, okay, well, Rwanda isn't safe, um, how safe is London? if someone is coming to the UK for um, for for safety, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, if you live in Zone 1 or you live in Richmond or something like that or, mm. you know, the, towards... Yeah, that's, Okay, that's okay. completely different. But then when you go towards su- certain parts of London, mm-hmm. you know, do you feel comfortable walking out at night? Uh, okay, well, those?
0: the thing is, right, I don't know Rwanda that well. Yeah. But if, say, for instance, uh, UNICEF have actually yeah. rated it as an unsafe... Yeah. Country, yeah, okay, exactly. Right? That's a difference in comparison yeah. to say the UK as a whole. Then I would go with their. The thing. US, I know. Yeah. I know the point you're saying. In comparison, every area you live in, there's always right? a hazard. There's always there's a, a hazard. hazard yeah. There's always uh, better a ha- uh, better neighbourhoods yeah. than others. Same can be said for the you know United States, right? Mm. I mean, everyone's carrying a gun over there, so you could get shot by accident yeah. easily, right? If you're in the United States, so how safe is it to be there? But then. In terms of how that compares to, say, for instance, Rwanda, in terms of uh, international convention, then yes. And then
1: how how much does Rwanda want that as well for themselves? well they're they're, they're 120 million 120 million but (laughs) how how, does it help their economy if uh, you know their their gig well i
0: think the current president uh actually his his name eludes me at the moment is quite uh, initially quite happy with the scheme right as a you know partnership with the uk but then all this Bad press has come in mm. now, right? That oh okay, actually Iran is such you know, it's it's not a safe country, whatever. And it's it's brought his country of which he's trying to actually clean up the image mm. and slowed it's, down yep. that process now. Because it's right, well actually we we're taking in your asylum seekers. Yep. What's that you know, what's that all about? We yep. don't need to be, you know, effectively being your caretakers, mm. right? Um, what's happening there and so it is it's, it's million,
1: a thing 120 million doesn't seem to be enough either uh, that's you, you know maybe you're you're a better expert at I don't know, look, <laughs> I don't know I'm at, at looking sure at it like from that. an in- economic point of view no, I, don't, I don't think for, that for me I, I can't see if I was the Prime no. Minister of Rwanda mate, I no. would not be ch- I would say look at least five hundred million. You, you yeah, yeah, more, yeah, no, no. I'll, 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 I yeah, but you're probably, picking a figure out of the sky, just, runner, right? No, no. Yeah. But I, well, I just don't think one hundred and twenty, one hundred and twenty million seems like a you know that's not enough for one. Well, one, I mean, it's,
0: one it's a It's in, it's, in, it's, in, it's, in. it's almost a tenth, a tenth of the uh, NHS budget, yeah. right? Which is one point six billion. Yeah. But still, it's a sizable amount, right? It's a sizable amount for the for the number of refugees mm. or the number of. Let me correct myself. Asylum seekers that they'll be taking because mm. you're you're not talking about hundreds of thousands. You're yeah. only talking about tens of thousands, right? But to speak more about this issue, we have our next guest of the day, Woodran B- uh, Braid. Now, Woodran is a representative uh, from the Refugee Council. alaikum, Peace and blessings be upon you, Woodran. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Hi.
4: Thanks very much for having me. Good afternoon. So
0: maybe <laughs> we're having a bit of a heated debate around this. Uh, so let's. know get your your views regarding this rwandan scheme is it a gimmick really i mean what is the refugee council's opinion regarding this scheme
4: yeah so i mean refugee council plainly believes that this rwanda scheme is wrong Mm -hmm. it goes against who we are as a country that stands for the values of compassion fairness and humanity and instead of this scheme we believe that the government should be focusing on creating a functioning asylum system that allows people crucially to seek safety in the uk a fair hearing on our soil and provide safe routes so they don't have to take dangerous journeys
3: mm-hmm.
4: and i think in relation to the rwanda scheme there's three points that i would highlight which is that it's really po- important to clarify i mean you've both been discussing this as well is that this scheme is a one-way ticket to rwanda it's yeah. not just offshoring um it's sending people to rwanda where their asylum claims will be processed in Rwanda and they will never be able to return to the UK. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we believe it will not work as a deterrent. And thirdly, it will not deal with the mounting backlog of people that are in a permanent limbo at the moment in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I think, before I go into those points, it's really important to remember who these people are. They mm-hmm. are genuine refugees. Yeah. They are people who are vulnerable and who are just like us. And since the illegal migration Act came into force in July 2023, which is a piece of legislation that's very linked to this bill, to this scheme, sorry. Um, 15,000 people have crossed the channel. Two-thirds are from six countries, Afghanistan, Iran, Eritrea, Turkey, Syria, and Sudan. Mm. These are countries where people are fleeing serious danger to their lives, whether it's a war or political oppression. And if everyone who crossed applied for asylum... And their claims were processed using the Home Office's own evidence. The grant rates would be 79% of people. So these people are genuine refugees, mm-hmm. and it's really important to kind of stress that. And yeah, I, I think said, I think
0: the problem is, Woodrin, that in you know MSM, you know, the media, mainstream media, mm. right? We have the idea that you know you have these hordes of uh immigrants coming over or so I should say refugees coming over and that they are this new or this terminology of being a, an economic migrant and we don't see them as actually they're fleeing persecution
4: exactly and it's a huge problem that um just you know people like you speaking about it on on the media it's so important to try and dispel that idea because it's factually just incorrect mm-hmm. we know that through the home office's own stats I mean, for example, last year, the highest nationality crossing the channel were people from Afghanistan. Right. We all know the situation there and particularly the link with Britain's responsibility for those Afghans. But, and so,
0: But sorry, Woodran, does not the Home Office, uh, the government, have ARAP, yeah. a resettlement scheme for Afga- uh, Af- Afghanis?
4: Um, so they do have several schemes for Afghans app is a specific scheme that's not actually a refugee scheme. It's specific mm. evacuation for those that were connected to the British forces in, in some way. Right, OK. This has brought many people over, but even that scheme has been very dysfunctional and beset mm-hmm. with delays. The other Afghan schemes have been really small numbers coming over and have actually been a real failure.
0: Right, right, right. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, um, I mean how... Uh in terms of you know are are there any specific challenges or obstacles that uh, asylum seekers face due to the Rwanda scheme, I mean, you said one of the points uh, that the refugee council has is that its effectiveness as a deterrent. you don't think it's is an effective deterrent
4: absolutely we We know that it won't act as a deterrent. Research has shown over and over again that people will always take these dangerous journeys it's really misleading we believe to kind of talk of completely stopping the boats we're an island and the fact Mm -hmm. is there is no way for people to claim asylum in the UK safely at the moment and when people take these huge risks to uproot their whole lives fleeing danger and war one more risk crossing the channel is just going to be part of a much bigger journey for them Mm -hmm. and in terms of you know, you asked what the specific challenges for refugees. The reality is is that the government's plans are causing huge distress, distress to vulnerable people. And every day at the Refugee Council, we work with men, women and children through our um, huge service provision that really have shown the human impact of this scheme. They're highly anxious and traumatised about the prospect of being shipped as though they are effectively human cargo to Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And we know that vulnerable people are already avoiding contact with vital services, which is Mm -hmm. really worrying. So we're already seeing the effect of people going underground, Mm -hmm. undocumented. This, of course, places them at huge risk of harm and exploitation if they're not engaging with our services. Mm -hmm. They're more likely as well to use alternative and dangerous routes to get here. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And
4: we know from the work we do with people seeking asylum that the lack of clear information is already leading to uncertainty rumors anxiety an increased risk of mental distress and mm. self-harm is what we've seen due to that fear of removal but also the majority of these people are stuck in this unknown limbo they're being held in their claims aren't being processed and so that unknown is really stressful and fearful for them
0: mm. i so, mean i suppose sorry sorry to uh, stop you there rana as an aside from that i was just thinking Instead of it being touted as or the Rwanda scheme touted as a deterrent, isn't it actually helping? Because ultimately, is this one of the five policy uh, markers for the, you know, the the prime minister to hit? Right. Which is to stop the small boats. Yeah. And ultimately, really, you know, in stopping the small boats, what you're trying to do is stop uh, these gangs uh, you know making making money out of this, but doesn 't the fact that we don 't have any legal means of uh, getting into the country and having an asylum processed actually uh, open up the floodgates for these gangs right to you know with these poor people you know whether they 're children women, men elderly uh, coming over at their own physical risk, physical and mental risk. But doesn't it open the floodgates to these gangs for human trafficking?
4: Yes, absolutely. It, it really opens up like such a vulnerable space for people, as you said, who are already incredibly vulnerable. Mm. And you mentioned the fact that there is very dysfunctional safe routes to the UK means that the Channel Crossings are higher. And
3: mm-hmm.
4: at Refugee Council, we really kind of campaign. For the government to increase safe routes because we believe it's a crucial step to actually meaningfully tackle the channel crossing. No one wants to see people get into a small boat and cross the channel. It's dangerous, it's the wrong way to, to, you know, give people safety mm-hmm. and so, but at the moment, safe routes are just not functioning at all. Mm.
1: So what are the Refugee Council doing to help refugees reach the UK safely?
4: We support people who are resettled to the UK from the moment they arrive with our services. However, as I just said, these safe routes aren't really functioning and Mm -hmm. there is no way for the majority of people to reach the UK to claim asylum safely. Mm -hmm. So as channel crossings have increased in recent years, safe routes have declined and we do a lot of campaigning and advocacy to the government to kind of listen to us on what they should do to increase access to safe routes. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by this falls under three points. Increase of resettlement, so the number of refugees being resettled in, to the UK safely, should be increased. It's at the lowest level for over a decade at the moment.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Secondly, family reunion processes should be vastly improved. And what we mean by that is that refugees who are overseas are able to join their family members in the UK, a very effective mode of kind of integration straight away if someone is joining an integrated community already and at the moment family reunion visas are beset with delays and restrictions mm-hmm. and thirdly we've laid out plans to the government to push them to try and pilot a refugee visa which doesn't exist at the moment but it would allow people to travel safely to the UK to apply for asylum mm-hmm. because at the moment you have to physically be in the UK to apply for asylum, which I think is often not actually understood.
0: Mm-hmm. And as
4: I said, there is no way for the majority of people to travel safely here to apply for asylum. Mm.
0: So Woodran, actually, as a point of clarification for myself and most probably the listeners out there, you know, that there is this idea that once a uh, asylum seekers... Um, application has been processed and let's say uh, they're currently in the UK it's been okayed, right, it's been passed and they've got asylum, what benefits right, what benefits do they get from the government then? If any.
4: Yeah, so once you've been received a positive decision on your asylum claim, you receive status and you you start to integrate into the British community, you You start being given rights, and mm-hmm. that is basically the beginning of the journey of mm-hmm. building your life in the resettlement. UK. Resettlement. Exactly. So, Well, no, resettlement is a separate scheme, but once you're um, in the UK as an asylum seeker, if you receive a positive decision, you then receive status, and you start to basically build a life here just
3: like mm-hmm. the rest of us do. Mm-hmm. Right,
0: okay. Uh, so because... You know, there, there's so much in the media that, oh, um, one of the things or the fires that are f- fanned by the media is that, oh, asylum seekers will get ahead of, you know, um, normal people on, say, for instance, council waiting lists, right? Council house waiting lists. They will get extra benefits. So that isn't the case then.
4: No, there is no jumping of the queue. I mean, everyone understands it. Once you receive status after being an asylum seeker in the UK, you really have nothing. You you live on very small asylum support while you're waiting for your claim. And once you've received a positive decision, you kind of start at ground zero. Mm-hmm. And there is no jumping of the queue. It's very much you integrate into the level community around you in an equal way. And mm-hmm. that's it's really important to understand that, to try, try yeah. and support. People who've, who've received a decision because mm. they need a lot of support at the beginning.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, Woodrun, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much uh, th- th- for today and coming on to the Drive Time Show with us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Have a good day. Oh two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. If you want to make a comment, if you agree with the Rwanda scheme or you disagree, please call in uh, or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, we've got an Instagram. Uh, a poll right uh, and our poll is quite it's p- quite binary do you back the rwanda plan uh, hashtag refugees it's a yes or no and i'm sure my esteemed co-host will come up with the answers right. <laughs> i mean i'm just judging i, I pretty <laughs> well, much I mean, know it's, what it's, it is
1: <laughs> but you know so let's, let's see what the yeah. percentage is yeah no uh, i mean it's um yeah look it's it's it, it's it's a f- fairly obvious, uh, fairly sort of obvious response
0: um, no, no let's put it this way it's a fairly obvious one if you have a shred of decency in you
1: well <laughs> but anyway no I mean, we are we are interrogating this though yeah we are we are we are, so, we, are a so, bit. we are I mean look if someone doesn't agree with it mm-hmm. um yeah, call in give us call your in news. and uh, mm. no and if explain it uh, why do you think it's the case and if yeah you, i'm here to say that look as long as there is a um that there is strong evidence to mm-hmm. su- support it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we will we will commend it, of course. We- yeah,
0: exactly. But let's look at uh, the overall cost. So actually, what is it costing the taxpayer? Right, uh, the payments to Rwanda's government already total uh, 290 million. That's 210 million less than, than Rana would say, but 290 million pounds, right? The Labour Party estimates that the government may end up paying approximately 400 million to Rwanda for this scheme, but the government have not confirmed any total costs. Uh, ongoing costs for flights, processing fees could also amount to tens of millions more annually. Uh, the costly court battles so far have, add, uh, have also added to this bill officials' uh, figures suggest that it may cost £63,000 more for each person that is sent to a third country. Mm. So you imagine, right? Woodrun's like saying, you know, we've got tens of thousands in in the system so far. So it's going to cost, for every one of those, another £63,000 more. Mm. So you tell me, how's that going to work out, cost-effective?
1: I mean, yeah, no, but I told you that... um the the if i was in the seat of the uh, the mm-hmm. Rwandan prime minister you know i i i have already, I've already forecasted it it has to be somewhere in the in the ballpark figure of 5 <laughs> eventually these uh, uh these refugees would also then become uh if if they do not go on to you know work and become members of uh paying tax towards mm-hmm. th- that's another question so who do so they, no, who, but who are see, they paying see, tax see to? look
0: as according to how Woodrun has explained it yep. to us, right? And quite clearly that once you're... So say, for instance, you... There is not... Let's, let's talk about if there were not this Rwandan scheme and that actually the government, you know, pull their socks up mm. and sort out asylum claims, right? Domestically, meaning in the UK. So someone comes here, you get sorted out, let's say two years... You come out of the system, your application has been verified. She quoted a stat, 79%. Mm. And that's not a refugee council stat, right? That is a stat from the government. Mm. So they themselves so owned up and say, right, well, actually, 100 asylum claims that we process, 79, almost 80 of those claims are valid. Mm. So they know, mm. right? Yeah, this is, this you know, there's, correct, there's yeah. You know, only 20% yep. are invalid claims, yep, yep. right? Or fake claims. So you're going to get 80% success rate in yeah. terms of getting an asylum here. Yes, It's been okayed. You're two years. You come out of the system. Then you integrate. Mm. So you start from the bottom again, right? You just go on a council waiting list. Mm. You can start working. And as soon as you start working, you're paying taxes, right? Mm. And then you are paying taxes, and then you are funding the government. You're right. funding the country. I mean, that's why I, I found it personally important for Wooden to, to clarify for us yep that actually as a asylum seeker when you have your application validated mm. and you, you get asylum here in the UK, you don't get um, fast-tracked into getting a council house. You don't get fast-tracked into getting a job. Mm. You face the same, if not harder hurdles because you imagine you're from Syria, you're mm. from Yemeni. What's your first language, mate? Is it English? I don't believe it is. Mm. So there is a big big hurdle to overcome to start off with,
1: right? So, um, this, is, this also leads to questions of how the UK, for instance, if we, you know, what I've seen in other countries, if someone is on an asylum claim, they are allowed to uh, start integrating at the same time. Uh, they- well, no, I'm
0: sure whilst you're, you know, in that uh during situation that during, during that, that claim, claim right now. yeah you you're acclimatizing yeah. you're learning english you're you're you trying staying to interview.
1: at someone with someone for instance no no
0: no i i think you stay you you are not you like have to a foster stay here yeah. no no you, you have, have to, to stay be, okay yeah. okay but anyway we're joined by our uh, last guest for this segment of the day uh anastasia uh, gravlas uh who is a representative from uh the migration rise anna i think i've spoken to you before
5: yes yeah, you have to, yeah, you have to.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us again. And we're talking about this time uh, another, I suppose, uh, issue regarding migration rights, the Rwanda scheme. I mean, what's uh, migrants' rights opinion regarding this scheme?
5: So, uh, from the outset, we have to emphasize that the scheme plays into the wider education demonization and scapegoating of migrants, including refugees. And this cruelty is just one instance of a wider pattern of the government demonizing migration and oppressing migrants. Mm through its, like, you know, there's countless examples of this, the Inhumane Migration Act, the National Human Borders Act, the cruelty of, you know, asylum accommodation and the general hostile environment. Mm. Um, but at the core of this specific, like, Rwanda scheme is the idea of punishing people for taking unauthorised routes instead of rectifying the reality that there is a lack of safe routes, especially for black and brown people. Mm. And I, by punishing migrants, the scheme and the narrative underlying the scheme ignores the root causes of displacement which is largely to do with British colonialism which is responsible for ongoing displacement and this bill is inherently like a violation of decency compassion and justice it flies in the face of supporting the rights and dignity of people seeking asylum and safety and we can't ignore the very real threat that this is like the way this is weighed down heavily on the mental well-being of people who are at risk Mm -hmm. of being
0: but, but, but Anna, what what are actually the specific rights which are being violated by this scheme? Can you point them out for us?
5: So what rights aren't violated by this scheme? So it would right, violate the right to family life, the mm-hmm. right to dignity, the right to liberty and freedom from torture, the right to access support, um, the right to an effective remedy because um, the plans include limiting appeals against deportations. Um, the Joint Committee on Human Rights had literally just said in their report that this the bill is fundamentally incompatible with the UK's human rights obligations. There's also a risk of refoulement, so the for- forcible return of migrants to a country where they're likely to face persecution. Like it's really scary, the ramifications are really terrifying. And mm. um, essentially the bill would give the government the power to disapply elements of the Human Rights Act and to ignore European, of co- European Court of Human Rights injunctions against deportation flights. And it even puts a legal obligation on the courts to consider Rwanda a safe country when considering removal decisions and to not gain any claim based on the UK's human rights or international law obligations.
3: Mm, so, so
0: effectively, everything that uh, the UK signed up for as a signatory in 1951 to the refugee charter. Yes.
5: <laughs> Essentially, <this laughs> So quite is bizarre, really. ...obligations.
0: Yeah, quite bizarre. Um, I think Rana's got a yeah, question. Yeah, so
1: what... Um, what is the migration crisis and how is, Rwanda, how is the Rwanda scheme solving it? If it can.
5: Uh, so firstly, at MRN we say such thing as a migration crisis because we believe this language should play onto refugees instead of onto a safe route that necessitate them taking dangerous journeys and the access is on the dangerous route that people are forced into and not the legal designation route. And the language of also tries to erase colonial violence from our history. It places displacement as independent, as something independent from our colonial past. In fact, it's entirely dependent um, because these awful conditions necessitating migration have been created through the violent effects of colonialism, imperialism, foreign intervention. We in Europe have a moral duty to help people who are fleeing these conditions that are created. Um, and so, the crisis we're experiencing is the impact of colonialism and racist policies. So, once you recognize there's no migration crisis, what is the schema solving? Nothing is playing into scheme. Because if we wanted to solve displacement, we would stop off our foreign interventions and foreign wars. We would mm-hmm. give refugees to the countries we've pillaged and And we would do our job by accountable for the displacement we've caused by welcoming people with open arms and not sending them again. A world, to a country that they didn't choose.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what do you think, Anna? Right, has the effect of you know the mainstream media uh, regarding the scheme? I mean, has it uh, fanned the flames of these? You know, this this small boat invasion. You know, this terminology, which makes you, you know, which is is so negative and incendiary, in really.
5: A hundred percent. The media has a massive role in playing in essentially like upping up and. Uh, exaggerating the scapegoating that the governments were doing, like the demonization of migrants, the language of invasion and swarm, this stuff of moral panic. And governments will always scapegoat marginalized groups to distract from their facing, especially in times of crises or economic instability. Um, so this is like the oldest trick in the book. Like it's, uh, scapegoating has been done against numerous communities, including Muslim communities, and this is nothing new. Uh, but also in terms of the media impact of public safety, Disappointing to see the spotlighting of quote unquote progressive narratives that been opposing the businesses. The narrative sets the idea that we should reject the Rwanda plan because it's unworkable or expensive. And we're really disappointed that the main criticism has been around the money that's towards this bill mm-hmm. or the unworkability of it, as opposed to the fact that it's morally wrong.
0: Yeah, I think, I think I totally agree with you there that uh, it's a sense of that, you know, can you put a price on someone's life, really? But, Anna, as always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you regarding migrant uh, issues. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good day.
5: You
0: too. Bye. or 687787 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So what is the answer to that poll?
1: Ha I do you. No, it, was okay. defi- it was it was it was 89% were not happy with uh, were definitely not happy. So that's a unanimous uh, quite unanimous. Yeah, the jury is out in that sense, but yeah. I guess a lot of these um, polls that we do um you know they always they they're always unanimously on one side. <laughs> it is I've never really come across a poll which is like 55-45 you Are
0: talking about Brexit now?
1: Yeah, no, it's 52-48. <laughs> so we, you know, it's uh, no, it but is I interesting think I, it's an interesting like I uh, think I
0: think Rana, you know this is quite um, if you're an informed yeah. person, quite an easy decision to make, and and you right? think
1: about it in the sense that, look, um, I, I, not just the fact that they've been sent to Rwanda, I'm, it's, it feels like there is a dehumanisation of Rwanda itself, yeah, which is, which is, I find, uh, you know, you know, it's, first and foremost, everything that's easy is, uh, that can easily be displaced anywhere is displaced anywhere, anyways, in mm. even in London, okay. The poor are always uh, housed in the worst of conditions, okay? Mm-hmm. Now that that's, you know, th- there's not enough worse conditions to house them. So now they're being housed off to or sent off to somewhere that a no supposedly one, yeah, safe location yeah, or I safe mean, look, This is a question. If the, if the United Kingdom had a uh, treaty with Norway, for instance, mm-hmm. you know... Is, that, is, this, is this policy good for them? I'll tell you one <laughs> thing,
0: right? I'm pretty much sure that asylum uh, seekers wouldn't, wouldn't mind being sent to Norway. <laughs> so it's right? the same and policies,
1: no... the same everything, yeah. but...
0: Mm-hmm. But quickly, because we're coming to the end of this segment, I mean, in conclusion, you know, with the persisting legal and ethical questions concerning uh, which remain uh, or concern around the Rwanda scheme, it's... I think we've, we've shown is more of a political gimmick. I mean, the policy was announced uh, when Boris Johnson's leadership was under pressure. It also seems that it was designed to show toughness on illegal immigration, even though it is not uh, seen as being enforceable. Mm. Uh, given other countries' failures with similar offshore processing, long-term viability may be doubtful, such as Australia, where within three months, centres were overfull. And the government have not been able to send any more people there since 2012. So, there is the, uh, yeah, the conclusion regarding this Rwanda scheme. So, anyway, we're going to the uh, news. Please join us after, where we will be looking at Alzheimer's. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome, to, uh, well, welcome back, I should say, to Monday's uh, edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Imam Rana Uh We've had quite a bit of heated debate regarding the Rwanda scheme and how workable it really is uh, in the first hour, we're now going to talk about Alzheimer's, uh, the blood, uh, or the blood test which could revolutionise uh, diagnosis. Now, uh, a report commissioned uh, by Alzheimer's Society from uh, the LSE back in 2019 found that there are currently around 900,000 people with dementia in the UK. This is projected to rise to 1.6 million people by 2040. So it's not a long way away, really, right? Mm. 1.6 million. Now, the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, revealed dementia and Alzheimer's disease were the leading cause of death in 2022. Collectively, they accounted for uh, 65,967 deaths. That's 11% of the total deaths recorded in 2022. Uh, And the increase is 10%. Year on, so it's not as if it's uh, a little blip. It's actually it's increasing in total. Right. Now Jabir reported that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, "Every disease has a cure. If a cure is applied to the disease, it is relieved by the permission of Allah Almighty." Right. So. We're talking about in this segment a newly commercially or a new commercially viable blood test that could have the potential to revolutionise diagnosis for people who are suspected to have Alzheimer's. Uh, experts say. Now, Alzheimer's is—I don't know if you knew this. I mean, we know it's a—it's a disease, but it's actually a life-threatening uh, or is life-threatening to those who contract it, but also. Uh, has emotionally uh, debilitating effects for uh, those who contract it and their families. Now, in today's show, we're going to look at the new developments that are in the field and see how, through Islam, we can offer guidance in terms of compassion, patience, and holistic well-being. Just give us a a brief outline as to what the actual disease is, Rana.
1: So the Alzheimer's disease is a progressive and irreversible neurodegenerative degenerative disorder that primarily affects the brain, leading to a gradual decline in cognitive function, memory, and the ability to perform daily activities. It is the most common cause of dementia. Individuals with Alzheimer's often experience behavioral and personality changes, as well as difficulties in communication. The disease has a significant emotional and psychological impact on both those diagnosed and their families. In the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, And worship Allah and associate naught with him and show kindness to parents and to kindred and to orphans and the needy and to the neighbor that is a kinsman and the neighbor that is a stranger and the companion by your side and the wayfarer and those whom your right hand possesses. Surely Allah loves not the proud and the boastful. So this is from chapter four thirty seven in this verse of the Holy Quran, in this verse, the Holy Quran directs us to show kindness enough to encompass all human all humanity in chapter seventeen verse twenty four of the Quran, it says, "The Lord has commanded, worship none but him, and show kindness to parents. if one of them or both of them attain old age with thee, never say unto them any word expressive of disgust nor reproach, but address them with an excellent speech." Mm. so I mean, this is, yeah. yeah go so yeah so it's um alzheimer's um just in a brief nutshell um i i am not sure if it's um if it's another word for dementia uh, no dementia, it's the onset it, yeah, it's, 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 it's
0: one of the factors of dementia yeah
1: so it's <laughs> it, it, i i have um i've i've seen it firsthand mm-hmm. um when my grandmother in her last um, probably her, in in the last year of her life uh mm-hmm. she she Contract dementia. I I don't. She didn't contract uh, Alzheimer's herself. But yeah, I've seen firsthand how um, you know. It seems as if like um, the person who you once connected with is is no longer. You know that's the that's the physically they're there, but mentally yeah, mentally exactly. So um, uh, this is my personal experience with this uh, with this uh, this disease. I would say so.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's and I think you know maybe we forget that. You know, we we gave a count, yeah, mm. in in terms of right at the beginning. Of what I did, so sixty odd thousand, right? Sixty uh, almost sixty six thousand deaths, um, uh, whereby dementia and Alzheimer's were the lead, were you know the cause of those deaths. Mm. So although you know you have the person who's contracted Alzheimer's uh, and then dementia dying. Mm. What about the carers? Yeah. What about the families who are affected? Because it must be—I'm oh, just asking you—it must be so, yeah, you know, heartrending. Let's say, for instance, you—you know, you said your grandmother, yeah. right? And you know you've known her for all your yeah. life. Suddenly, did she, you know, recognize you? What was that like?
1: You know, it was—it was basically uh, there was brief glimpses of mm. oh yes—and uh, then all of a sudden it would just go back into. Um, Things that have just, um, you know, embedded in her mind, uh, maybe it's a conversation of, so, with someone that is really, you know, really st- strong into her mind. Um, and she'll just usually be just having that conversation. For instance, if I know you as Talib, mm-hmm. she'll probably know you as um, George, for instance, Okay. okay? And she'll be t- talking to you as if she's talking to George, but mm-hmm. she's very serious. Um, mm-hmm. She knows you as George. She mm-hmm. she doesn't know you as that. So you know, it's, you 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 do kind of like accept it, um, uh, and you're just happy that they are still there um, in that sense, uh, and they're mm-hmm. alive. And uh, but yeah, of course, it's it's like a it's like an acceptance that um, they are not there anymore. So. Uh, the, so it's like a ghost in a shell. Exactly. Really. Uh, I mean it's more uh, this is me looking at it from my grandmother's point of view, okay? Um if I'm very honest, uh my parents are more dear to me than my grandparents, okay? Mm-hmm. That's a very honest statement. Of course mm-hmm. my grandparents are, are dear to me, but yeah, but there's de- a level of Yeah, separation, yeah. exactly. Right? So m- maybe my my parents would view it differently to mm-hmm. how I would view it and um uh accept it from inside but yeah this was like a you know it was like an amaz- amaz- amazing experience um of uh you would say uh, she's been very healthy throughout her life mm-hmm. uh, she's only had like physical ailments for mm-hmm. instance her leg um you know she she would hobble uh, but besides that she's been very fit from the inside okay mm-hmm. immune immune wise she's been mm-hmm. very good so this was the first time we as a family experienced a um...
0: but did she degenerate because of that diagnosis of dementia and I mean, if you don't mind me asking yeah, yeah, yeah. and you you know don't mind sharing no, no, of course with myself and the the listeners out of there, did she ultimately die because of dementia i
1: I don't, I don't think it was um okay. uh, due to dementia D- dementia didn't have a have a any kind of like um physical physical uh, uh effect on her um mm-hmm. my uncle would know better than I would but mm-hmm. um it was more down to uh, just she she reached a fairly strong uh, because that's age, the thing yeah.
0: with with alzheimer's it's affects the functioning of your yeah. brain effectively i yeah. mean you gave the the description earlier on and ultimately things that we take for granted yeah. as reflex like breathing mm. your heart yeah you know, breathing swallowing yeah are reflex yeah so you, you can imagine if you have lost that reflex yeah. and you can't swallow mm. means you can't eat yeah you can't breathe yep yeah. All right, you have to think about, think about breathing, yeah, yeah. then things become very, very dangerous yeah. and thus life-threatening. Yeah, yeah. So hence, it's, it's classed as a life-threatening mm. thing. So, I mean, if we go into some of the key characteristics of Alzheimer's, uh, uh, and they include... You you pointed out with your grandmother, Mm. memory loss. Now, one of the earliest uh, and most prominent symptoms is the loss of short-term memory uh, and hence, you know, her having long-term memories, right? Uh, Individuals may have difficulty remembering recent events, names, uh, conversations. Uh, Cognitive decline. Uh, As disease uh, progresses, cognitive functions such as reasoning problem solving and judgment are affected individuals may struggle with complex tasks and experience difficulty in decision making language impairment Alzheimer's can impact language skills uh, leading to difficulties in finding the right words expressing thoughts or understanding written or spoken language there's a uh, mood and behaviour changes you know changes in uh, their behaviour their moods are very common individuals may experience depression Uh, Anxiety, irritability, or apathy. Uh, Personality changes can also occur. Spatial and motor skills. Uh, In later stages, uh, this is what I was pointing out earlier on, outsiders may uh, affect spatial awareness and motor skills, leading to difficulties in coordination and balance. Uh, Progressive nature. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is progressive, meaning that the symptoms worsen over time. They don't get better. Uh, uh, The rate of progression can vary from person to person. Finally, brain pathology. The underlying uh, pathology of Alzheimer's involves the accumulation of abnormal proteins. These are the, uh, I think, the tau proteins, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, deposits in the brain. Uh, specifically, here we go, beta amyloid plaques and tau protein tangles. Uh, these deposits interfere with normal cellular function and communication between the nerve cells. Um, the exact cause of Alzheimer's disease is not fully understood as yet Uh, and it likely involves a combination of genetic, environmental and actual lifestyle factors. Uh, Age is the most significant factor or risk factor and the prevalence of Alzheimer's increases with advancing age and when we talk about that and what are the actual ramifications Mm. or the uh, implications I should say of this new blood test Mm. is that Look, prior to uh, actually having clinical uh, diagnosis of Alzheimer's, Mm. well, clinical diagnosis is actually having a PET scan Mm. or a lumbar uh, puncture, right, Mm. spinal tap. And they are quite expensive, uh, and we're going to go into that a bit later in Mm. in the piece, but they're quite expensive procedures. Mm. Whilst this particular is a commercial blood test, and I, yeah, we're going to talk to actually Professor Dave Curtis regarding this. Mm. Uh, in fact, actually, he's, he's he's on the line now. Um, well, let's get to him. Um, so, Professor Dave Curtis, he's a retired consultant psychiatrist, uh, currently honorary professor at the UCL Genetics Institute. He's lectured in psychiatry at St Mary's Hospital uh, Medical School. Uh, part of the imperial college and was awarded md for his thesis titled genetic linkage studies of the functional psychosis was also senior lecturer at the institute of psychiatry and obtained a phd in genetics from cambridge university Aslam and peace and blessings be upon you professor dave curtis thank you for joining Uh, us on the uh, drive time show
6: thank you for having me thank you uh
0: so um we're talking about this new blood test Uh, Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, why, to start off with, I mean, why is Alzheimer's classified as a life-threatening disease?
6: I mean, it's just losing your memory, right? No, well, I heard your comments uh, before about how it begins with a memory, but then eventually other functions are affected. And if people live with Alzheimer's disease for long enough, then they become less and less capable of normal activities and Mm -hmm. movements, including, as you said, things like eating and swallowing, and eventually people will be unable to move around properly, unable to breathe properly, They become less and less inactive. So if people live long enough, then yes, they will die of Alzheimer's. Usually what happens is because of their poor, you know, generally frail lifestyle, they'll, they'll die of something else first, a chest infection or something. But ultimately, you know, it's possible, it's reasonable to say that it's a, a, a fatal disease, yeah.
0: Mm. So with this new blood test, I mean, can you explain to myself and the listeners or our listeners out there, I mean, what are the current available methods for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's? And, you know, effectively, how accurate and how how soon, right? Say, say for instance, you know, I, I don't present with any um, symptoms of Alzheimer's, but can I get a blood test? Or, you know, what tests are out there currently?
6: What? As of now, no. I mean, if oh. you didn't have symptoms of Alzheimer's, then people wouldn't be doing any testing on you. Mm-hmm. The tests, as you said, that will give you a, a clear diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease are either a very specialized brain scan called a PET, PET scan, which mm-hmm. is not an ordinary brain scan, or, as you said, a lumbar puncture, which will is an invasive test, uh, which will measure the levels of uh, tau protein and amyloid protein uh, variants in your Cerebrospinal fluid, and those tests in practice they would diagnose Alzheimer's disease, but really almost hardly anybody is going to get those tests. People will diagnose Alzheimer's disease in somebody who presents with a typical picture of Alzheimer's disease and doesn't have any other illnesses. They might have an ordinary brain scanner, an MRI scan or a CAT scan just to see that there's no tumour or anything else that be causing the problems. But I, again, most people with Alzheimer's disease probably wouldn't even get that. And if the diagnosis is fairly obvious from the clinical picture, then there won't be any um, there won't be any sort of specialist testing. So, but to get a really clear diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, then you would want that PET scan or that lumbar puncture. And what's in the news today? is that there are these new drugs that are proposed for, for Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And the news is that the NHS is not, you know, if you needed a PET scan or a lumbar puncture, then the NHS is not set up to give PET scans and lumbar punctures to thousands of people to see if they've really got Alzheimer's disease to see if they could have this drug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This new blood test changes all that. If you could do that yeah. blood test, it looks like it's just as good as, this, as these scans. You could say, yes, you've got Alzheimer's disease, you could have this drug. Uh, and it's really a game changer from that point of view, mm.
0: so what I understood from uh, the reports of the Swedish study is that it had a, a high rate of um, uh, efficiency i should say yeah. um, in terms of predicting uh, you know those who would actually contract alzheimer's is that correct?
6: It- It it, it's as good. It's what it what it's very good at is saying. Have you got the Alzheimer's disease process going on in your brain? Right, right, right. Which is what the PET scan and the lumbar puncture would show. Mm -hmm. Now, of people who have that disease process, not necessarily everybody would, in fact, go on to develop clinical Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. But it's so the study I think is saying it's as good as measuring the spinal fluid directly, doing a PET scan directly. It's as good at that as predicting who will uh, develop clinical Alzheimer's disease and it is also saying you know yes that pathology is there in the brain we're measuring in the blood but that disease process is happening in the brain now uh, and you know it could be treated to prevent the disease uh, progressing. Mm.
1: So what implications does this new study from Sweden have for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's how long before it can be readily available?
6: Well, people are talking about getting it in, within the NHS within a few years as a sort of a five mm. years, although I, okay. you know, maybe it could be sooner, that, that sort of span. Um, I mean, I think one of the key things I would – I'm not involved in this myself, but the, one of the key things that I would say about this is this is, this is a, a standard blood test that GP could do. Wow. So, you know, if you need a – want a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, you, have, you just go to your GP, you get referred to a mm-hmm. me- memory clinic for a specialist assessment. There's a months-long waiting list. This, you go to the GP, you say, "I'm worried I've got Alzheimer's disease," and just, you know, they'll just do a blood test, hmm. like you would do if you had, you know, high cholesterol. So you the know, point of service diet. is so easy, then, right? Really. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it is, it is transformative. Yeah. I think that this, the you know, that you you then don't need that specialist assessment. You might want mm-hmm. specialist input to support somebody in, you know, the developing services, but but you know, those again might be brought more into primary care. So um you know it it potentially in terms of making a diagnosis it, it makes a very very big difference now at the moment there's not it's not that much you can argue about how useful it is to have the diagnosis or not but but if at the same time's been able to make a diagnosis easily if there were treatments that worked well as well then that would be you know really really phenomenal
0: mm. i mean what are these uh professor these new developments in terms of you know drugs for Alzheimer's now then. I mean although, you know, there is no definitive cure for Alzheimer's at this point in time. I mean with this early diagnosis, you know, that you know there are current coping strategies and clinical therapies, right, which can arrest the progress of the disease.
6: No, not I wouldn't say so. I mean the, oh, okay. the I mean, there are there are drugs. There are these two new drugs which are being considered by the NHS, which are claimed to slow the progress. That's the only thing okay. to make them. They don't halt the progress; they slow the progress. Mm-hmm. There is a l- debate among experts about how good those drugs really are, okay. how worthwhile the benefit they provide is, and also it's clear that they also carry risks. And a small percentage of people, well, uh, half a percent of people, or a handful of people who prescribe them died from this this complications oh, taking on wow. so these are not these are not safe drugs
3: mm-hmm.
6: and there is bit there is heated debate among experts as to whether they produce a useful benefit which would be very worthwhile to people with alzheimer's disease or whether the benefit they produce is actually trivial mm-hmm. and not really you know helpful and especially when you consider that they could be dangerous and especially because of those risks that you would need to have regular Brain scans, mm-hmm. and also they're not a drug you can just swallow. You have to go into the clinic and have an infusion. So, right. so it's it's they are there, mm-hmm. and Nice the the NHS can consider whether they be licensed or not, and Nice would consider whether they should be available or not. Well, the hope the hope though, is that behind those, that down the line, that people will be able to develop better treatments, and mm-hmm. and one of the things about this new blood test, is it will make it much 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 easier to test new treatments because instead of starting somebody on a new medication uh, a whole group of people and a whole group of people on controls and waiting for five a, a year to see whether their Alzheimer's disease gets worse you can just do this blood test on them mm-hmm. measure this phosphorylated tau right give them your treatment which you hope works and see if that reduces yeah the if it reduces the protein
0: hormones. fantastic right, okay yeah 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 Yeah. Uh, well so, amazing so I'm hoping things.
6: that there will be you know that they're Maybe some better drugs coming along
0: down the line. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, Professor Dave Curtis, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very Thank much you. for joining us uh, on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Have a good day. Oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, and one of the things, you know, the Professor uh, Curtis was that saying, if you think about Iran, right? You know, you they don't actually go that. To, to actually conclusively say you've got Alzheimer's, mm. then you just say, right, okay, go straight to the PET scan mm. or the lumbar puncture. So it's a process of uh, uh, elimination mm. in a sense, right? So when we actually look at the diagnosis, there's several factors, and the key components of those mm. uh, are a clinical diagnosis, mm. uh, medical history. You look at uh, you know the medical history of that person, uh, including information about the individual's cognitive symptoms, their progression over time, any relevant you know medical history because it is her- <coughs> hereditary right mm-hmm. uh, clinical interviews, family members, caregivers may be interviewed to provide additional insights you know obvious you know that you know, have you noticed that you know your if it's a relative or with his it's a friend, yeah. they're, they're forgetting things yes. or whatever, right? Uh, cognitive as- assessment. Uh, var- various cognitive tests are administered to assess memory, language, problem-solving abilities, and other cognitive functions. These tests may include the mini mental state ex- uh, examination or the Montreal con- cognitive assessment. Functional uh, assessment. Uh, a clinician evaluates the individual's ability to perform daily activities and any any difficulties that they may be experiencing in tasks such as dressing, cooking, or managing finances. Uh, neurological examination. So a neurological uh, exam is conducted to assess the reflexes, coordination, muscle strength, and other neurological functions. This helps in ruling out other neurological conditions that may present in, same, in similar symptoms. There's brain imaging. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, we're getting down to... So brain imaging, meaning the PET scan, mm-hmm. and then cerebral spinal fluid analysis. So that's from the lumbar puncture, the spinal tap, uh, and that's whether to see if there is this buildup of tau protein uh in your blood. Uh and obviously blood tests, genetic testing. And uh, so there's a lot of there's a whole raft yep. of um tests that you do mm. and although I think the PET scan and the uh lumbar puncture yep. are, you know, right at the end, yep. they're you know, you don't go that extra mile. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Uh, already you know. That as long as it's not, say, for instance, maybe something else, Parkinson's disease yeah. or a tumor in the brain, then you know, as a process of elimination, you say that uh, it, it must be Alzheimer's.
1: Yeah, um, it's fairly well documented as well. So um, yeah, this is this, this is these are the processes as you've explained, mm. um, and uh, it will be interesting to um, see more developments going into this in the future as well. And another very interesting thing that I um, uh really liked about what the professor had said is that you know that instead of it having to be so complex or complicated in some cases mm-hmm. um he he believes that whether this this is this is a form of testing which could be done by a gp as well yeah. so um i think you, that is the sea change
0: yeah, that is the the, the kind of like, instead the of having to yeah changer. so
1: so that's the that's the that's something that really caught my attention mm-hmm. and uh i really hope that the, you know we we quickly get to that point so um, uh, it, it doesn't have to be so long to 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 work it out. Um, I mean,
0: I think you know, given that we currently don't have a definitive cure, or yeah. there's not a drug that you can take, and the uh, t- I think the the me- medication that is currently under debate yeah. regarding Alzheimer's, and the professor Curtis was like saying, mm. there's a huge debate around them. Yeah, I mean, the potential gain mm. in a uh, someone with dementia, someone with Alzheimer's taking them, is it outweighed by the, the risk mm. that is involved? Because it sounds, it's not as if they're taking a tablet, mm. you know, they're having to take it intravenously, so they're going to have to go into uh, hospital anyway, um, be uh, hooked up to a machine or whatever uh, to get the infusion, and then still have to have brain scans. Mm. and so And then, you know, as one of the side effects, possible death. Mm. So you know what? Yeah, you know, if you were doing a cost-benefit analysis, mm. is the benefit worth that cost?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you're gambling with yeah, your life, exactly. right? Yeah, uh,
0: but you know, we don't know. Mm. But I can understand the point that the professor, um, the the professor is 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 going through regarding that, uh, because you know, if you can actually. Um, diagnose it earlier mm. than, you know, maybe, you know, with that blood test, you can just say, right, okay, any new medications down the line, you can just test it on the blood. Mm. But, I mean, what are the actual, uh, regarding the new blood test? What what are well, those issues?
1: The new blood test is a significant step towards a screening test for Alzheimer's. It's, it detects the uh, p-tau-217 protein, ...in the blood that is also found in the brains of people with disease. The Swedish Swedish researchers say it it is as accurate as existing tests. At the moment, Alzheimer's diagnosed either with special PET brain scans or samples of spinal fluid. The NHS doesn't have enough machines or specialist staff to do that at a scale required which are only available in about one in 20 NHS memory clinics. It means that even if people ever get a diagnosis, it it often comes when the disease has significantly progressed. That that matters because there are drugs coming down the tracks that have been shown in clinical trials to, to significantly slow the decline of memory and brain function, but they have to be given at an early stage to be effective... Um, so yeah, look. Uh, considering the uh, the great funding of the, you know, for instance, uh, I don't know if it's great funding or uh, the vast amount of funding for the NHS. You know, there still seems to be lapses in these uh, in these matters, as you've as as discussed here. That um, you know, it, it the effectiveness of actually diagnosing. Uh, finding this as a diagnosis or identifying alzheimer's is 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 lacking uh, massively to the point that once it is diagnosed it 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 is too late in, in in most cases um so that's the that's the issue that you know we are currently seeing in regards to the the new you know for why there is actually a need for a new or a more effective blood test so um there is a treatment for that as well. Uh currently there is no cure for Alzheimer's disease, but however there are various therapies and interventions aimed at managing symptoms, improving the quality of life and providing support to, support to individuals uh with Alzheimer's. So this the <coughs> these treatments are more in terms of, you know, uh, they're not necessarily uh drug yeah they're not necessarily drug related however they are more emotionally um, in in terms of emotion the nhs or any um you could say any agency that well, it's agency the right word but any charity as well that is uh, trying their best to find a cure they are readily available mm-hmm. at least from an emotional point of view um to help people that um might have family members who are suffering from this so mm-hmm. um
0: yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, and to talk about more the emotional yeah. uh, side of uh, contracting and dealing with whether it be Alzheimer's or ultimately dementia, we're joined by. Uh, our next guest today is Sania Rahman now Sania is a dementia advisor for Team Sahara which is the dedicated dementia support service for the South Asian community uh, it's part of uh, which is itself a part of Alzheimer's Society uh, although her background is in IT she's done a lot of voluntary work with different organisations her heart lies with dementia as both her grandfathers lived with and ultimately died of dementia As-salamu alaykum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Sanya. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show today. Uh,
7: Wa alaykum Thank you very much for having me.
0: So uh, you work with uh, uh, Alzheimer's Society. I mean, what support services does the organisation offer to individuals who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and uh, dementia as well, um, as well as their families and their caregivers?
7: So we, at the society, offer a wide range of support services, and it's not just for the person who's living with de- uh, dementia. It's for everybody. So our services that we offer are inclusive of the family, the carer, even extended families. Um, so we, you know, we don't just support the one individual, which may be the person with dementia. So we have our um, helpline um, which you can find the details of on our website uh, that helpline is um, there's a great team that work on that helpline They're dementia advisors who will support you over the phone they can refer you and signpost you to local organizations and support services we also have our dementia advisors like myself who work in the community so we're working uh, face, more face-to-face so we do home visits We can do telephone um, kind of assessments and support as well. So, in any way, a person feels comfortable to be supported. I mean, even on our our Sahara service, we have um, um, we have um, uh, even we're supporting people with emails um, and text Mm -hmm. over text as well. So, there's a lot. There's a lot that we offer. We offer kind of um, uh, what we call lasting power of attorney, which is a legal. Document. So we have a lasting and power of attorney. Uh, a team dedicated to that. Um, we have a free will service that we offer as well. Mm. Um, in terms of kind of um, therapies, we have something that we call singing for the brain, which is a music-led kind of reminiscence group activity. Mm-hmm. So that's um, wherever, where, where, which, in whichever part of the country you're in. Um, it will be offered whether it's virtually or face to face Mm -hmm. Um, so that is we have live musicians um, we have people come together to sing songs and music because it's quite It's music is quite there's evidence to show that it kind of can relieve anxiety and distress
3: Mm. in a
7: person um, with dementia as well but all this all this is all this is all for everybody so sometimes we have carers that come forward who are struggling so mm-hmm. we we're sometimes just supporting a carer and um, so it just depends really so we there is a, there's a lot out there so yeah everything's everything all the resources information is available on our website and um, so i would urge anybody who has any has any kind of questions to visit our website as a first kind of call really
1: uh, that's brilliant especially the um, insight in regards to the music uh, being used as a therapy but can you provide insights into interconnected psychological and mental effects experienced by both sufferers and caregivers of Alzheimer's and how these effects may influence each other
7: so dementia is very very complex um, and although there is a group of symptoms that links people together and the kind of journey but everybody's journey is different Mm -hmm. when it comes to dementia it's all based on their life experiences you know you know what they've done in their lives their family structure um family dynamics you know everything their lifestyle everything Mm -hmm. but it's every day is different so it's really difficult it depends on the person Mm. the family what situation they're in but there are Obviously, with anybody with dementia or Alzheimer's, there's always going to be challenging behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, more often than not, I, I should say, really, majority of people, we do see a lot of challenging behavior towards the end um, of the kind of journey. But, you know, every, every person is different. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a very, from my personal experience, like you said, I was a, a young carer for my grandfather, so my um, dad, Daji, Mm-hmm. who lived with us so i was 13 when i started caring for him um and more recently my my other grandfather my nanaji who recently passed away so i've seen it the the, the kind of distress the it puts not just the person with dementia but not just the carer but the whole family mm-hmm. um you know it's there's a lot to work through but my advice would be to and this is what I say to all my service users: is to take each day as it comes, and really enjoy and emphasise the good times, because you know you don't know what's going to happen the yeah. next day. I know? mean,
0: Sonia, can I ask you? I mean, it's you know, uh, it's quite personal. Uh, you yeah. said both your grandfathers have succumbed to dementia, and ultimately, you know, that's what um, you know they they passed away with. Yep. Yeah. Was it, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we know from our research that uh, it's a progressive uh, disorder, uh, disease. Yeah. Was it very sudden or was it just like a gradual decline in their cognitive uh, reasoning, their memories, uh, short-term memories? You know, how, how did that impact?
7: So um, I have quite um, a unique perspective because I've had an experience where dementia was diagnosed very late um later in life so my grandfather my dad, he had a stroke
3: mm-hmm.
7: and that's when his behavior changed at that time i'm talking about you know 13 14 years ago even longer than that actually but um you know we didn't know what dementia was right. had no idea mm-hmm. so he was just not himself forgetting things you know things that we wouldn't expect him to forget um, and it did, it was, it was a very, because he had vascular dementia, which is,
3: mm-hmm.
7: which, which was stroke related. Right. You see it, you see it, the kind of progressive side become quicker. It, it you know, you don't, it, with, with Alzheimer's, you kind of see like a, a step um, progression where it's, it'll be fine, you know, for a certain period of time and then it might dip or might mm-hmm. go up with vascular dementia, with dadaji, it was very, very quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sudden. alhamdulillah, mashaAllah, he had, he lived with it for 16 years. So, um, but it was not a way that I would have, you know, mm-hmm. liked to have seen him, you know, in his later life. But on the other hand, my nanaji, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and there was lots of interventions put in straight away to help and support. And he had a, a good quality of life. So, when we say people can still live well with dementia, I've seen it firsthand. You know, mm. my nanaji, mashallah, till the end, had a fantastic quality of life. Mm. He was still.
0: I, I suppose, in- Sanya, you know, you're like saying at least, you know, they can, although they might not have that um, remembrance of you on a day to day basis yeah. or family members, but I'm sure, um, and most probably Rana can, can yep. you know, can testify to this you know, you will feel that empathy that, you know, you're amongst people that, you know, who care for you, at least, right? I mean, on that on that basis, on that kind of almost, I would suppose, suppose you know, more kind of like animalistic level of emotion. Yeah. You would just feel that empathy?
7: For the person with dementia, you mean?
0: N- uh, yes, yeah. Yeah.
7: Yeah, Yeah. of course. I mean, with my Nanaji, I use him as an example because it was more recent, um he lost his language about three years ago, so he wasn't able to speak. Um, he'd just kind of scream and shout, you know, if he was in pain or something was mm-hmm. bothering him. But when he'd, I mean, a long long time before that, he'd actually forgotten who we all were. But right. there was this kind of familiar, familiarity, I can't even say the mm-hmm. word, but that, you know, when he'd see us, he'd smile. Yeah, at least and he'd feel safe, out. Right? Yeah, yeah 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 it's just as if he knows for you know i don't know how, but he knows mm-hmm. that we're his own yeah. so he'd put, always he'd always smile
3: mm-hmm. and laugh
7: and put his hand out you know to say you know Assalamualaikum.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: um especially when he used to see my mom right um I don't know what the connection was there, but he'd just be so happy to see her mm-hmm. and he'd just tap her on her head, you know mm-hmm. um you know like when you give love mm-hmm. So yeah, so there is mm. there is something behind it, but it's a very I always look at it as a very special kind of gift as well. Mm. Um it really mm. makes you appreciate every single moment which we take for granted in this day and age. Yeah,
0: too too, too. Um,
7: yeah.
3: Too so, much
0: procrastination yeah. really. I mean
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. How how does your organization advocate for the needs and rights of, you know, people living uh with you know, Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, in terms of access to, you know, health care, uh, social services and community support?
7: So we work very closely with um, GPs, uh, memory clinics, um, primary, secondary kind of NHS services as well, you know, care coordinators, um, dementia nurses, admiral nurses. So we're always working with them, especially for my team, because we're working with the South Asian communities, there's a huge barrier there, which is the language and communication. Mm-hmm. A lot of our communities don't know what services are available. Right. So we work very closely with GPs, especially because they are the first kind of port of call for someone who's having a problem or has a illness or condition to work with them, to understand, to make kind of make it, make services more
3: accessible. You know, uh,
7: accessible. Yeah, that's yeah. right. you know, accessible and for people to know you know that they're there
3: mm-hmm. and
7: what they're there for and you know they are, can be used because there are lots of services that are being underutilized mm-hmm. by our communities especially because there's nobody there that can understand us if you, if english isn't your first language
3: True.
7: but as a society you know we're always working we're always we always encourage anybody any dementia advisors anybody we always work with the person that we're looking after and with other healthcare professionals um, you know me on a, on a on a daily basis you know i have um, carers who don't speak english you know and the struggle
3: mm-hmm.
7: so it's really trying to make healthcare professionals gps receptionists even who can try or can most can be quite difficult to deal with to mm-hmm. understand that they need to be patient mm-hmm. and they need to understand what the person is trying to put across you know, even whether it's through body language or, yeah. you know, broken English or anything like that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I mean language is the, I suppose, the, the biggest barrier, isn't it? I mean, how do you describe that you're in pain really?
3: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, yeah.
0: you know if you're not speaking the same language uh, and, you know, like you, you say, with the experience of your uh, you know, your grandparents or your grandfathers you know, that the only way that they themselves could say that they're in pain is to actually shout out, right? And yeah. that wouldn't be in English, so you can imagine if, say, for instance, you know you're you're taking it, uh, taking um, a sufferer. Uh, I shouldn't say sufferer. Uh, someone who has contracted uh, dementia uh, to your local GP, and they're shouting and they're having you know basically an episode. Who's yeah. to say what's happening? And then that you need to have, I suppose, that uh, that. Ability to translate, that ability to calm that whole situation in in a very, a you know, like very hard situation as it is anyway.
7: Yeah, of course it's, um, you know, it's it's difficult. I mean, they are they are there are interpreter services, you know, where interpreters called. But this is something that I'm trying to work on: is that an interpreter might not be able to exactly capture what that person is going through because they mm-hmm. meet them in that one split second. Right. Whereas a person, where you know, a family member or a carer can knows that person. You know, they yeah. See there's them a dynamic there with within them. the family. Yeah. Right? So, but there, you know, I use an example of my mother-in-law when she was in hospital. Mm-hmm. They kept calling an interpreter to. Because they wanted to obviously explain what was going on, but that interpreter doesn't know her mm-hmm. and it's the same with a person with dementia They're not known by someone who's just there for a small period of time. Mm-hmm. so how is that person supposed to capture how that person's really feeling? Yeah, you know exactly. only that can only come, so we try we're trying to work mm-hmm. on there's lots of things that we're trying to put in place as with within team Sahara that we're working on to help our communities more
8: mm-hmm.
7: um. But so that's one of the things is working with interpreters as well to really, you know, try to capture, how, you know, find ways of really trying to capture what they're, you know, what they're going through and mm-hmm. trying to explain it to health Yeah, I'm just thinking
0: of a film title. that just popped into my head, like Lost in Translation. And it really yeah. is, isn't it? But anyways, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sanya, uh, uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining us on the Drive no Time problem. Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. as yeah. alaikum.
7: Thank you. welcome salamu salam. Thank you.
0: 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam, uh, UK. We're going to go straight to our next guest, uh, Amy Pepper. Now, Amy, Amy's been a dementia specialist admiral nurse for 10 years, uh, mental health nurse background. She's worked in community settings and led local services. She currently works with Dementia UK's research team uh, providing clinical academic leadership to Dementia UK's other admiral nurses and contributes to research on dementia care. alaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Amy. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show.
8: Thank you for having me. It's good
0: to be here. Right, so we're talking about uh, dementia. Well, we're talking about Alzheimer's uh, dementia care of the you know this new blood test. Yep. Within Dementia UK. Now you're an admiral nurse. Uh, to myself and uh, listeners out there, you know, what differentiates an admiral nurse to other caregivers?
8: Sure, so admiral nurses are dementia specialist nurses um, and we work with the whole family affected by dementia, so not just with the person who has dementia but also with their family carers as well Mm -hmm. Um, and what we do is provide that one-to-one support, that expert guidance um, and some of that emotional support, some of it's practical support Mm -hmm. in sort of dealing with the symptoms and and the issues that can come up with dementia um, really with the aim of supporting people to live more positively with dementia so our nurses are continually supported and developed by the charity Dementia UK Um, we receive sort of supervision um, and training from internally from the charity Um, and and really we're sort of the gold standard in specialist dementia care and specialist dementia nursing.
0: Mm, You're the uh, you're, you're the you know the Porsche's Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, I should say, you know, the the you know, the, the the what well, the the best the of the, the best in terms of dementia care in in caregivers. I think Rana's got a
1: question yeah. for you. What unique challenges do families and caregivers of individuals with dementia often face and how does dementia UK specifically address these challenges?
8: So dementia is a a huge problem Mm -hmm. nationally um you've probably heard some of the stats already on your show but we've got an estimated um, 944,000 people living Mm -hmm. with dementia in the uk and it has a huge impact on families um so i think one of the things that's quite unique about dementia from my perspective as an admiral nurse is you know the pressure that it puts on family relationships so this Mm -hmm. isn't just something that happens to the person who's diagnosed with it this is something that happens to the whole family and has an, an impact on all of them and when we think about how dementia can sort of impact on communication um, and, and somebody's ability, ability to communicate, that can put a real pressure on relationships. Um, when we think about dementia, having an impact on somebody's ability to look after themselves, and do things for themselves, that mm-hmm. again has a huge impact on um, family members who might need to take on a caring role. Um, and that can be really difficult, you know, when you're also dealing with things like the person perhaps not remembering who you are, Um mm-hmm personality changes changes in behavior Um, I think as well what's quite unique about living with dementia is that people will often need to access a real range of health and social and and voluntary sector support services and that can be really really complicated to navigate Um, Mm. you know not everybody who's been involved in this knows what the difference between health and social care is you know how to go about accessing that Um, so that's something really that you know, admiral nurses can support with is sort of navigating that really complicated health and social care system and getting people the support that they need at the right time when they need it.
0: Mm, yeah, because I, I suppose you know, if you are dealing, you're a family member and you mm. you, you actually are a caregiver to someone who is um, who's contracted Alzheimer's. It must be such a minefield, right? You're dealing with actually, you know, your your relative who's got the contracted that illness, uh, which is you know a handful is uh, in itself and then you know how do you go about um getting extra care for yourself getting funding for yourself maybe so you're you're you would be like that first port of call then
8: yeah absolutely so our um, a dementia helpline um, is accessible to anybody who's affected by dementia so whether you're worried about symptoms yourself whether you're caring for a family member. Um, so we'd say that's a really good starting point if Mm -hmm. you are you know struggling with this or living with this and you need some support it's to get in touch with us on the helpline in some areas we have admiral nurses on the ground Um, we don't have enough of them at the moment so our aim as a charity is to make sure that every person affected by dementia has access to an admiral nurse who needs one Um, at the moment we've got about 400 admiral nurses across the country working in various different settings um, but you know, absolutely more are
0: needed at the moment. Mm. So, Amy, in your experience, you I mean, what are some of the common misconceptions or stigmas that surround dementia? I mean, how does you know your service as a admiral nurse work to dispel these and promote you know a better understanding of the condition?
8: Um, so, I think often one of the most common misconceptions is that dementia is a condition of old age mm-hmm. um, and that it's just about memory. Um, but actually dementia is you know sort of an umbrella term for a number of different diseases Mm -hmm. and under that umbrella there are you know things like Alzheimer's which might typically first present with memory problems but there are also less common types of dementia and for those the the initial symptoms might be quite different they might be more around um, changes to personality um, perhaps changes to um, you know sort of physical abilities and, and walking things like that um and also some types of dementia can occur in much younger people so people you know under 65 years of age and that comes with you know a whole host of different problems where people are perhaps still in work perhaps still have mortgages perhaps mm. still have younger children mm-hmm. um but i think also you know as as you say stigma and discrimination around dementia can be a particular issue and, and a particular issue for minority ethnic communities mm there can be a real lack of understanding um you know sometimes difficulties with sort of traditional taboos that might exist about dementia um dementia being seen as an inevitable part of aging so people aren't seeking help um but also you know as was touched on by your your previous caller problems with language barriers Mm. and that lack of you know really culturally appropriate support so what we can provide as admiral nurses um is you know We sort of have knowledge about all of those different things that can impact on on access for different communities and we work really in a person-centred and a family-centred way. So we will look at each individual family that we're working with and we will tailor the support that we give to their particular circumstances, Um, you know, be that sort of family relationships, ethnic backgrounds, all of that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So given the evolving landscape of dementia care and research, how does Dementia UK ensure that its admiral nurses stay informed about the latest advancement and best practices in dementia care to provide the highest level of support to families?
8: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that's really important to us as a charity and, and something that we put a lot of um, you know investment into is, is how our admiral nurses are kept up to date. So we have internally our Admiral Nurse Academy, um, which is a dedicated kind of learning and development space that supports our Admiral nurses um, to develop, to continue to learn and grow, um, to know what they need to know to be able to support people in the best possible way. Um, We've also got our research team, which I'm a part of, um, and we are involved in um, research into care and support for people with dementia. So we've really sort of got our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the research world. And what's another really important part of what we do there is making sure that we disseminate new research findings to our admiral nurses as Mm -hmm. well in a way that's, you know, easy for them to access because they've got busy caseloads, you know, they're out there doing the work. So it's about really sort of condensing that into bite-sized reviews so that they can keep their finger Mm -hmm. on the pulse as well of of what's going on, new advances in dementia care and support.
0: Mm. Well, Amy, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show.
8: No
0: problem. Thank you
8: for having me.
0: Have a good day. Bye. Oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, I mean, with an aging population in the UK, the prevalence of Alzheimer's is expected to rise, placing increased demand on healthcare services and support systems. It would be wise to heed the words of Hazrat Mirza Taha Ahmed. Uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, regarding this issue. He said, The responsibility for care of the aged is gradually shifting to the state. Care of the aged re- represents a heavy burden on the national economy. However, much a state is ready to spend. It can never buy them peace and contentment. The most terrible feeling of having been rejected, left out and abandoned, and the most painful realization of a growing void of loneliness within are problems beyond the reach of Many to resolve to consider that a comparatively remote relative would ever be taken care of by the rest of the family has become almost impossible to imagine in such societies the need for homes for the aged grows with the passage of time. Yet it is not always possible for a stage to uh, for a state to propor- apportion enough uh, members' money to provide for them even the minimum requirements of a decent life. Physical ailments are much easier to cure or alleviate, but the deep psychological traumas from which a considerable number of elderly uh, of modern societies are suffering are far more difficult to treat. In predominantly Muslim countries, however much uh, values may have deteriorated. The condition which prevails in the rest of the contemporary society is unthinkable. It is considered a disgrace and dishonor for the old and age to be treated with such disrespect and callousness. It is a matter of shame for most Muslims to hand over the responsibilities of elderly relatives to the state, even if the state is willing to look after them. As such, the role of a, a Muslim woman amidst her home and family is far from over With the coming of age of the children, she remains deeply bonded to the past as well as to the future. It is her kind and humane concern and her innate ability to look after those who stand in need of care, which comes to the rescue of the older members of society. They remain as precious and as respected as before and continue to be an integral part. Uh, The mother plays a major part in looking after them and providing them with her company. Not as drudgery and tedium, but as live uh, natural expression of human kinship. Thus, when she grows older, she can rest assured that such a society will not reject her nor leave her abandoned as a relic of the past. In Muslim countries, it is rare to find such exceptions as it is rare and becoming. More rare to find exceptions in modern societies amongst relatives in their treatment of the old. Muslims are taught, thy Lord has commanded, worship none but him and show kindness to to parents. If one of them or both of them attain old age with thee, never say unto them any word expressive or of disgust nor reproach them, but always address them with excellent speech and lure to them the wing of humility out of tenderness and say, My Lord, have mercy on them even as they nourished me when I was a little child. That was verse seventeen. Uh, sorry, chapter 17, verses 24-25. That brings us to the end of our show today. A big thank you to our producers, uh, Hania Javid, Javid, Mahida Nasir, and myself. My, uh, and thanks to my co-host, uh, Imam Rana Atta. Here's news.